Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. On the last episode of Guilt. Uh, we sort of clicked because uh, I had a child that was playing soccer a lot and he had two kids, a boy and a girl that were playing soccer. So we clicked on the sports side of things. When was that found? Was it found after? Five days after. Five days after. See, that's obviously planted there because by five days we'd searched, we'd gone past all our mills that the Uniflow annealing system had been completely shut down and opened up. So we're talking not just maybe in a shift, so we're talking quite a lot had to be done. So if the hat and all that had been found five days later, Mm. then that's been put there. disturb some people. Today we can officially announce that New Zealand Steel has cracked the code. On the 21st of June 2004, scientist Jim Donnelly vanished from his work at the Gladbrook Steel. From Brevity Studios in New Zealand, I'm Ryan Wolfe, and this is Guilt. in the early days to indicate that we were looking for somebody who had um, been any misadventure. You're on hands and knees and and you don't know what you're going to find. It started off as a joke and then it got rather scary. In the last episode, we met Brian Meeklejohn and learned a lot about the operation of the Rolling Mills plant and the subsequent search by himself and other mill workers in the hours and days following Jim's disappearance. We also discovered that Brian was one of the last people to ever see Jim alive and actually spoke to Jim that morning about their children's upcoming soccer matches, which if true, would go a long way to demonstrate that Jim was in a normal, stable frame of mind that morning and highlights a particularly troubling element of this case, and that's the fact 
that staff at the mill were only asked to come forward and speak to police if they believed they had information of any relevance, as opposed to the police questioning everyone at the mill at the time. In reality, the reason this likely never happened is because from the very outset of this case, the police believed there wasn't really a case at all. In their minds, Jim had simply run off. So far, we've spoken to those closest to Jim, those that were directly involved in the bizarre events that led up to Jim's disappearance, Tracy, Stephen and Debbie. However, there is a fourth person that was a close friend of Jim's at this time and was directly involved in the immediate hours upon the discovery that Jim had disappeared. His name is Clayton Hills and he recalls his thoughts of the police investigation in the early hours. Yeah, he, he rang me. Oh, I remember I was in my office and uh, he said he was worried about Jim and that Tracy had rung him and hadn't heard from him. And he said, oh, I'm not sure what, what we should do. And I just said, we've got to go out there now. This is not right. We just go. So um, we drove out to the mill to try and sort it all out. And uh, as you know, <coughs> the, um, it was a pretty, pretty windy night. It was a pretty, pretty bad evening because we tried to talk the police into getting a helicopter in to try and do a search around the area but they wouldn't they wouldn't do that um, uh, and that sort of thing so we were went into the we were taken into a, a boardroom area and um, they had then done a search through and c- couldn't find him couldn't contact him and uh, uh, that's I think that's you know they then called the the police and after that um and but we were just sort of held in a boardroom area while they did that because you know they didn't want anybody obviously going into a production area like they had there um so yeah we were held there and then went on quite late and then they because some of the the, the worst thing i think was they weren't sure whether he'd gone into one of the furnaces. So they had to wait until they were emptying the furnaces and they would have been able to tell whether any contaminant was was in there. So um, that happened the next day and there was nothing, which is a, a relief, if you like. Um, but there was a pretty hard wait. Yeah. What did you sort of feel like um, their response was like at, at the time? The the mill, um, yeah. Well, yeah. They were obviously yeah, yeah concerned and went through those steps, which were, which was, <laughs> is quite. I, I I suppose it's what you can expect of a process like that. Obviously, um, uh, it was more what the the I think the police treated it slightly differently, which. Um, And not, well, I don't know, because I suppose that they just have to look at it and, and the way they did. They When I spoke with one of the security guards on the gate, he said the police never actually ever spoke to them. <laughs> Didn't ask them whether they'd seen anything coming in or out or anything. That was, that was, that was very surprising. And so what are your thoughts on the police, their whole you know, investigation in the early stages? Yeah, it was almost like they'd 
semi made up the mind to I I can't remember his name. There was a Yearberry and Yeah, was- I think it was Yearberry. Yeah. Yearberry. He was the first one from Pukakaui that was out there that night. You know, he was the one that I was trying to get, you know, the see whether they could get the helicopter in for. But um <coughs> yeah, they weren't not taking it seriously, but were um yeah, it was quite light on his actions, if you like. Yeah. yeah. If you'll recall from episode two, when we learned about the timeline of events, it is some surprise that following the initial search of the mill during the day, come 11pm, the wider search was called off till morning. Hindsight is certainly 2020, but we can now assume that these hours were likely crucial. If Jim, or perhaps his body, was somewhere nearby, it would have been this first night that he could have either fled or his body have been removed. I asked Clayton about this and how he felt about it at the time. Did it frustrate you a bit that everything stopped that night? Because uh, from my understanding is at about 11 o'clock that night, they called it to start the next day. Yeah, and I think that came from the police because, you know, because I said, well, if he's out around, we should have the the helicopter with the heat-seeking looking for it and they wouldn't do it. And I said, well, if it's a case of money, we'll pay for that. And it goes, no, 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 we're not going to do that. So, um, yes, yes, it was uh, frustrating, but it would also be very difficult in the dark to have looked. You know, it would have been ideal if you had heat-seeking equipment, but um, for for searching around the the property, I did go out uh, a couple of days later with a search and rescue team and... We went entirely around the whole area. We spent a day going through it and did that a, a couple of times with them and um, yeah, guys that look for people that are lost for, for, for various reasons and going through all the outbuildings and everything, just going over everything again. It seems clear that in the first days of Jim's disappearance, the original police had quickly come to the conclusion that there was no foul play involved and that he had simply run off. And to be fair to them, in these early stages, there genuinely was no reason to believe anything untoward had taken place. So I wonder what then was their reaction when Jim's hard hat was unexpectedly discovered on Saturday the 26th, five days after his disappearance. So then I guess we'll go to, um, if we jump ahead to that Saturday when the hard hat and items are found. Um, Do you remember when you found that, when you were told that and what your reaction was? Yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty surprising. Everybody thought, well, hold on, you've, you've done all the search and then suddenly you find this. So it almost seemed like somebody had planted it and, the, and therefore it, it sort of should have highlighted something, you know, um, even bigger for the police, if you like. They did, uh, to be fair to them, the, the, the police did stay in communication all the time while they were going through that because that was when um, when they were draining the, the acid bath which it's yeah, actually a light, yeah. light acid bath and that sort of thing so um but but yeah it, it seemed pretty strange that something could in that environment be suddenly be sitting there so um yeah i can almost imagine that for police at the time the discovery of jim's hard hat and items in the acid vat would have likely been a thorn in their side, evidence that would apparently refute 
the idea that Jim had simply run off. I asked Clayton what their reaction was to this discovery. Do you remember what their reaction was or how they did explain it to you? Um, well, yeah, they, they, yeah, they couldn't really explain why it was still there. That you, know, you could sort of say the bits that were found in the tank, you, you could understand why somebody just threw it in at any time. But uh, to find the hat on the outside at the same time, yeah, they had no, um, no idea why that, why that would be, mm. as to why, in theory, that they'd missed it for the whole week. <laughs> mm. I'm probably starting to sound a bit like a broken record at this point. We keep rotating back to the discovery of this hard hat. And there's a reason for this. And that's pretty obvious. It's crucial to this whole case. And don't worry, I'm going to spend a dedicated episode very soon going over every detail about the hat itself, its discovery, and every other aspect of it. But for now, I want to hone in on something key about its discovery and the subsequent police reaction, or more accurately, inaction. Prior to the discovery of the hard hat, Mill's staff had been asked by police to come forward on a voluntary basis if they had seen or interacted with Jim in the time surrounding his disappearance. But we know from speaking to Brian whose name doesn't appear in the official timeline, that not everyone came forward. And to be fair, this is somewhat understandable. As Dave Glossop rightly said in episode 2, not every case can be pursued as a homicide case in the early hours. It would be paralysis by analysis. But I would argue that the moment the hard hat was discovered, this would present at least a reasonable possibility that someone else might have been involved in Jim's disappearance. So the question is, how did this affect the police response? Did they ramp up their investigation? Did they question every mill employee that worked during the hours since Jim's disappearance? The short answer is no. Uh, my understanding is that their thought was that Jim had sort of come back, and this is yeah, the only yeah. explanation they could come up with, which just sounds... So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy, because you couldn't, you can't really, yeah. I'll sneak around because, because like I say, when, when we went inside, I was really surprised. It wasn't a dingy sort of work environment. If somebody was in there, you would see them. So, for somebody to sneak around and, and do that, yeah. So that just sort of showed their their thinking of of trying to palm it off. Um, yeah. In a way, they sort of backed themselves into a corner, and then when that showed up, they had nowhere to go, really, did they? Yeah, and because they hadn't. Locked that stuff down on the first day. They, um, yeah, they had nowhere to nowhere to go. <laughs> yeah. So then after that, I guess um, what happened from there? Did it sort of just slowly fade away in terms of the police effort? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And and then uh, the mill, uh, what, for a better term, the mill wanted to move on, if you like, and and was not sort of keen for some of the stuff to being re-examined or, or pursued so that, that um, and the police weren't necessarily pushing that to, to make that happen mm. so that was fr- a, a major frustration yeah mm. they basically they were like it's not here that's it yeah um, and and having been on that with the search and rescue team when they went through it, when we did a ground search um to say that he would have come back afterwards was just ludicrous. <laughs> yeah, it's just ludicrous. 
Let's pause for a moment and imagine a fictitious scenario. Let's pretend that in the early stages of this case, police knew it was a homicide investigation. Let's say, for instance, that Jim's body was found in the mill and that he had been murdered. How would this police investigation have been different? What do you think is the first thing they would have done? I'm not a police investigator, but I think it's fairly obvious that they would have questioned every person in that mill. But why question everyone if they hadn't seen or interacted with Jim? Well, if we know there's at least one other person involved, we're now looking for additional evidence which may create a new lead. When were you working your shift? Did everyone sign in when they should have? Were all members of your crew present between the hours of 6am and 9am? Had anyone on your crew been acting unusual or agitated in the time surrounding Jim's disappearance? Of course, we know there was no body and no obvious homicide. But should the police have stepped up their investigation the moment the hard hat and items in the vat were discovered? In my opinion, yes. It would be through questions like these that potential irregularities would be found, pressure would be applied, and if there was someone else involved, it's likely it would have been discovered. So the question is, were there people working at the mill at that time that may have further knowledge about Jim's movements? I believe the answer to this question is yes. And there's a reason why many of these people likely never came forward. And this has to do with a directive that was given to employees working at the mill at the time. The following statement is from a mill staff member we'll call Peter, who would prefer his real name and voice not to be used for fears of reprisal, so it has been voiced by an actor. We got communication from the company that said you're not to talk to any reporters or any police without having a rep with you at the time, like a company rep. So you can imagine how excited you are to go and sit in that room and sort of almost snitch on your employer, if you know what I mean. And even though you're not like, it's not like we killed the dude or anything and we're hiding it, but you know what I mean? Like, it's never a good look. I don't currently have written proof of this directive, but I have verified it with a second source who was working at the mill at the time to be an accurate statement. We have to wonder, why in the case of a missing employee would NZ Steel issue such a directive? The only real defensible reason they could offer would be to protect against any employee sharing possibly proprietary information. But is this really the reason? Is it more likely that NZ Steel were attempting to control the situation? A situation which, to be frank, shouldn't have been theirs to control. The direct result of this communication is obvious. Staff members that may have had further information simply didn't come forward knowing the potential harm that might have on their career. Can you imagine the outcome of speaking to police or media in a negative light about the mill as an employee? Like Peter said, no one likes a snitch. I want to add here that at this point I have no reason to suspect any kind of cover-up or wrongdoing on behalf of NZ Steel. But what I am suggesting is that through their authoritative measures, people that likely had additional information didn't come forward. And as we all know, any little piece of information can be key. Oftentimes, it's something that the witness doesn't even know is important because they aren't privy to every aspect of the case. So now, I want to reach out to you. 
and provide those people who either worked or still work at the mill the opportunity to speak anonymously, without fear of reprisal. If you had any interaction with Jim in the days leading up to his disappearance, I want to hear from you. If you were working at this time at the Glenbrook Mill in any department and noticed any odd behaviour of any staff, strange, out-of-place comments after Jim's disappearance, or anything you saw that made you stop and think, anything, I want to hear from you. Please don't think that what you know doesn't matter. It does. If you're aware of who placed Jim's hard hat beside ringer roll number one, please contact me. I can assure you 100% of anonymity. You can email at brevitystudiosnz at gmail.com. At the end of the last episode, I was just making my way out to the Glenbrook Mill for the first time. I know I won't be able to access the mill itself, but I can get an idea of the surrounding farmland, any bush, the nearby estuary, and just a general feel for the topography of the area. Obviously, if Jim has left the mill somehow other than the main gate, either Jim or someone else would have had to contend with the surrounding environment. One key element is an access road to the south of the mill, Williams Road. I managed to speak to some of the residents on the street about what they could remember in the days surrounding Jim's disappearance. The first person I spoke to had decided to reach out to me regarding his recollection of the search that took place at the time, and the fact that despite their location directly opposite the back access road to the mill, they were never spoken to. It's, um, it's always surprised me when people said there was extensive searches um, taking place because, as I say, we live directly opposite what they termed a stage two expansion gate. So it was a locked gate, but it was a driveway up to the back side of the steel mill. Uh, and at the end of our road was the another access back road, and it was all the, the steel mill farm was all around us. Um, and we... We didn't see anybody, basically. Never got interviewed, didn't have anybody check our property or can't recall anybody checking the bush opposite us or the driveways or um, on the road. Um, my wife did recall someone there with a dog, but that was when the case was re-looked at a few years later. So where you guys lived, so across from you, across Williams Road, there's quite a bit of farmland around that area before the mill. Did you guys used to go walking through that area? Yep, yep. So, so you- we walked. Um, my wife used to walk our dog um, all through the mill property. We used to ride. Uh, she used to ride her horse on the mill property, and I used to walk with her at times. So we we covered a lot of the mill property. Yeah, and so um, on well, a da- this this side of it, yeah, they, yeah. they own two sides of the. Um, property two sides of it and and we were you know the the, um woku side i suppose you could call it Mm. um and so on a day-to-day basis sort of you guys would go for a walk through the farmland sort of every day probably just about every day yeah yeah and in that time you you never really saw anyone searching no no wow that's interesting isn't it yeah well, they, so, yeah, so we've always sort of said that about, um, as, I, as I said before, you know, when everybody said about extensive searches. And I mean, you'd think our place would have been a prime. We were the first house on the road, um, uh, straight opposite the gate, one of the main gates. 
Um, everybody had to drive past our place to get up the road. There were several houses, you know, quite a few houses along the road. I'm going to include a map of this area of Williams Road to the south of the mill in this episode's companion post on my Instagram and our Facebook page. Just to be clear here, we know that a search did take place. But the question is, why were these nearby neighbours never questioned by police, nor was their property ever searched? Williams Road is the only access to the southern side of the mill. You would think it would be prudent to question residents on whether they had seen any unusual activity in the days around Jim's disappearance, perhaps vehicles that might have been out of place. But it appears that at least in the case of this resident, that never happened. However, where this resident doesn't recall seeing any searches, another can specifically remember extra activity when she came home that day. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. No, I had come home and there were um uh, I was at uni at the time and I came home and there were police cars everywhere. And there was all these people uh, in the paddock, just across the road, um, and we sort of didn't really—I don't—I don't know why—I didn't sort of think too much of it. It was like, oh my gosh, look, you know, and then didn't really see anything, so I went inside. And then my dad had come home not long after me, and he comes running into the house, and he was real scared that something bad had happened because the cops were parked outside our house. Um, and um, you know, what was terrible for him, I guess. Um, and uh, he just sort of said. You know, he's calling out to us, and you guys are right. He goes, yeah, you're all right. And then he sort of went over to the guys and, and spoke to them and said, hey, what's going on? And they said, oh, there's this guy missing. We're just having a look around and see if we can find him. And that was sort of um, all we kind of got from that, and then we were just watching the news to see what was happening. In terms of, I'm just looking at the map here, so across the road from your house, is there sort of like a line of pine trees or something there across a paddock? Yes. Yeah, there was. There's not any more, though. Uh, but there was a line of pine trees there, and there was what we used to call the um, the forest, <laughs> uh, which was sort of to the, uh, if you're looking straight across the road, it was to the left of our house. There was a whole bunch of pine trees there. Oh. Um, okay. But they were, that, yeah, so there was, um, there was a whole bunch of pine trees that were just like a little, um, like patch of them, I guess. Yeah. Uh, and then sort of past that, there was like a, a hill, and then there was like a line of pine trees that, that lined that, that area that blocked the view of the Stillmore. Yeah. None of those are there now. Yeah, okay, that's that's what I was thinking because I thought that line of trees would have blocked your view. So the people that you saw, were they on your side of those trees? Yes, they were on our side. Also right up by Williams Road there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, how many? Uh, the, did, co- the, co- the cop cars and the cars that were there were parked on Williams Road. 
Yeah. Um, and we could just see heaps of people just walking through and just um, just doing like a, you know, how they kind of stand in the line and go through all the grass. Yeah. Um, that's kind of what it looked like to us. There were cops in normal cop uniforms, uh, and then there was just some other people too that I can't really remember if they were in any kind of uniform or anything. Oh, yeah, because, yeah, there was, there was like about at least six or seven cop cars there. Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so it was quite big. When you look across the road sort of from where you were living over to the mill, is it quite sort of yep. a bushy? Are there lots of places to hide and, you know, do you think someone could hide and not be found? Not really. Um, it was pretty open and, like, I mean, my like I said, my dad was, was in that area quite a lot, um, you know, shooting and stuff uh, around that area and then around the um, the storage ponds as well and sort of on the other side of the mill. So he knew that area quite well. Uh, and um, it wasn't really, like, we'd been for walks and stuff around there. There wasn't really any places. Like there were little tiny sort of bushes, like there's... Um, there's one there called, I want to say Dumbledore, but it's probably not that. Dumbledore. Um, Dumbledore, that's the one. That's sort of there, and it's just like a, a very small patch of trees. Yeah. Um, and my um, my younger siblings used to play in them. Yeah. Uh, I never played in them, but uh, I didn't move up there until I was 18. So um, they, were, they were quite often playing in them with their friends and stuff, but there wasn't really, like, not that you could hide for a long time anyway. You know, if someone was running out over that farmland, you know, someone's going to see you. Yeah, it was quite, I mean, apart from those little pockets of kind of little uh, trees, but even the little pine forest that was kind of just to the left of our house, I mean, we could see the kids playing in there when they were in there. So it wasn't like super secluded. And plus we had a dog that would, you know, would have, and wasn't tied up that would have gone over and made a bit of a noise and, I know the neighbours at the time had a dog as well, so it was, you know, and like we had the, um, there was a farmer who was driving constantly up and down the road um, doing things. Um, I, I don't know his name, but he was, I think we, we just called him Kelly, um, and he's he's from what I understand, I think he's dead now. Uh, and we also had the Stillmore Security driving up and down that road about four times a day and then into the night as well. So they would have seen something too. Oh, um, okay. So the security, yeah, that's so, for the mill, they would come down there? Mm-hmm. Uh, to come, yeah, because there's the back end, like there's, there was an entrance there to the mill, not that it was used very often, but quite often, um, like they would drive past all the time. Um, you know, and, and if we were out walking, like, and it was nighttime, they would stop and talk to us. So if they had seen any, and quite often they had torches, um, you know, like if they or a possum or something like that they were looking so they would have seen somebody as well had somebody been hiding there yeah it sounds like they had the security was pretty tight yeah um i'm i heard a rumor something about there was um people were stealing copper uh from the end from if you go down williams road you go right down to the end there's a gate there and people were stealing copper and coming out that way Uh, Uh, i never i never saw any of it And I don't know how much of it was true, but that was kind of the rumour anyway. I've confirmed through a source from the mill that there was indeed a significant copper theft from this rear entrance to the mill at some point prior to Jim's disappearance, and this likely caused an increase in security. And when taken in consideration with the apparent lack of places to hide, it certainly seems that leaving the mill in this direction without being seen would not be likely. Either way, 
I'm very keen to get out there and see it for myself. Okay, I've just come out to... I've done the turn-off to come and have a look at um, the steel mill. Never been out here before. I just wanted to sort of get my reaction for the first time I come out based on what I'm seeing around me. It's just farmland, just sort of rolling farmland with patches of bush. You know, just sort of standard New Zealand. I'm going to go here. There's a steel mill lookout here. I'm going to pull over into. Let's have a look and see. I have no idea what this is. Oh, there's some bollards, plenty of graffiti. Okay, let's jump out and take a look. Uh, yes, I'm on a, a lookout, which is surrounded by nice New Zealand bush. There's a little pathway here up to a lookout where I can see just big, big buildings. A lot of smoke coming out. Many, many stacks with smoke. I mean, I don't know if it's smoke or steam. can't see a huge amount of the place but if I jump up on top of this railing without falling if I can manage it oh, oh now I'm gonna fall in yeah I mean it's a big it's a big big place to give you an idea I mean it's many many stories high Uh, just building after building after building. God, I'd love to get in there and have a look around. At this stage, it's probably not likely that they're going to let me in. Um, but who knows, we'll see. So what can I... Yeah. I can see a, one of the buildings has a sign, slab making. So that's probably where they're making the big slabs of steel that Brian was talking about before it ends up getting rolled in the rolling mills plant and big car parks I don't know if I can walk down actually I might walk down this bit see if I can get a bit closer obviously security's pretty tight these days oh yeah I can see a bit more here. oh right so I can see actually hundreds of coils which I imagine are, um, wow, hundreds of coils. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I can't see a huge amount other than just a huge, huge operation. All right, I want to go find um, Williams Road. I would say, to be fair, around here, there's a lot of bush. Um, there's a lot of bush. How much of this was here 20 years ago? I'm not sure exactly. Uh, um. oh, let's 
get up here. Oh. Now there's a chicken. Hello. Hello. He's like a cool little bantam chicken or something. Come on. Come on. No, he doesn't want to borrow me. Right, so I'm going to go try and find this Williams Road. Oh, there's a bunch of chickens. Hey guys, Jesus, they're trapping me in here. I managed to escape the mill's roaming chicken security and jump in my car to head south of the mill to find Williams Road. It's in this area that a majority of the search for Jim took place. And my purpose for visiting is really to get a feel for whether I think it's possible Jim or someone else transporting a body could leave in this direction without being seen. I've gone back up the road a bit. Uh, this is Williams Road. It doesn't have a signpost, but it must be Williams Road. Now this is where I've spoken to a couple people that live down this road. And it's kind of speculated that, oh you see there's Dumbleton Bush. Well, I mean it is very thick bush. Right, so this first house here, the guy I spoke to, said they didn't see anything. Cop cars. But others said that they did. Now I'm looking at this area. This is south of the mill. To try and get a gauge on whether a person could escape down this way and not be seen by these people here the neighbours on this road you know it's very open here it's very open I mean it's kind of rolling hills uh, grassland with just sort of scattered small trees but I mean there's nothing could a person like Jim evade being seen down this way I don't know I suppose if I just put it this way do I feel like I could come down here and not be seen when a whole lot of people were looking for me I think it's probably not very likely and I would consider myself pretty capable So the road keeps going down here. Authorised personnel. We're just going to head down here anyway. Actually, no, I think this is actually a road. As I move down Williams Road, my initial feeling is no. It's not likely that a person or persons could move undetected in this area. But that changes as I make my way further along and get more of a sense of the bigger picture. So I'm down south, looking back at the mill. Jeez, it's massive. The size of these buildings, it's hard to... It's like some kind of dystopian city or something. Plumes of smoke or steam or whatever coming out. It's quite impressive. I reach the end of Williams Road where it terminates with a newer style house, which according to signage, is owned by the mill itself. 
I stop and jump out of the car and try and take in my surroundings. At the same time, I can't help but visualise all those years ago, dozens of searchers combing these paddocks and gullies, looking for any sign of Jim. I'll just jump out here for a second. Yeah, so I'm south of the mill now, looking back at it. It's a cross-rolling sort of farmland, but there are quite significant gullies with bush and bush and stuff in them. Could someone come this way and avoid being seen? Now, to my left or to the west, that's where um, the Waiuku River comes in here and eventually runs up to Waiuku. It's quite, it's a significant expanse. I wouldn't want to try it. I mean, you wouldn't swim across there. I've got to admit, coming out here now, it's not exactly what I was, is it what I was expecting? I'm not really sure. There are some big groves of trees. But I mean, there's big open areas of paddocks, mainly, and then near the mill in particular, there's really some big trees and gullies full of bush and... Hmm. But then down by the water's edge, you know, it is quite thick bush down there. I mean, and the other thing too is, uh, there's no guarantees that if he did get out, he came south, he could have gone to the north. Um, but that certainly, you know, it doesn't seem like the way that you would go. Right, well, I don't think there's much more I can see right now. I'll take a photo of this, put it on my Instagram so you can get an idea of what we're looking at here. Yeah, I mean, I think someone trying to sneak out the back way here, across this farmland, through here, I just don't think you're going to get through here without being seen. I just don't. The other thing to consider too is if he had if he had somehow ended up in the water somehow. I mean, we're talking about June. It'd be freezing cold. Um at that time of the morning, you'd probably be hypothermic in 10 minutes in the water. Why he would enter the water, I have no idea. Hmm. Oh well. It's been a good day. I've been able to get on site and for the first time get a an idea of what we're looking at here. And yeah, the scope is kind of what I imagined, but it's actually even probably bigger than what I expected. The possibility of Jim somehow ending up in the Waiuku River is certainly something that cannot be ignored. Whether he went in there of his own free will or not, I've heard stories about people that end up in the water in a certain place, at the right time, never being seen again. I've checked the historical title charts and it was an outgoing high tide at 7.30am the morning of Jim's disappearance. Is it possible that Jim was swept out? It's possible. Why that would happen, I can only speculate. But as I stand here, 
The expanse of water right next to the mill looks threatening, and not the kind of place you'd go for a swim. I jump back in the car and start making my way down Williams Road and home for the day. But as I drive back past the row of houses, I pause and jump out again. Something that's interesting here is that um, I'm standing over where the houses are on Williams Road. And from where the houses are, there's actually sort of a berm hill that's between them and the steel mill itself. And then there's a huge amount of paddock before the mill. So if someone were to get out, let's say Jim had gone out of the paddock, out of the mill, and then run across the paddocks, they would never see from the house here anyway. If he ran in this direction, sure. But you could run in the other direction, down the coastline, and no one would see you down there. Especially no one from these houses anyway. Which is, it's, looks very different than when I... Very different than when I looked on Google Maps. When looking from above, it looks as though the row of houses would have clear view of the field south of the mill. And while they do have a view of some of that area, the topography of the ground actually prevents them from seeing 80% of the fields below the mill. So while I feel you would easily be seen by a person at the end of the road, upon further inspection on my way back, I don't think you would from the row of houses at the start, which would explain why the first resident I spoke to doesn't recall seeing any searches. While there was apparently security that would drive up and down Williams Road a few times a day, That still leaves ample time for either a person to escape in this direction, or perhaps alternatively, could a vehicle have accessed the southern side of the mill via Williams Road, collected someone, and then left without being seen? The short answer is yes. I'll include a map of this road and photos in this episode's companion post, demonstrating the way the road could be used to provide access for a vehicle. We know that at least the first resident on the street was never questioned regarding Jim's disappearance, or their property ever searched, so it appears there was no effort in these early days to establish whether there had been any unusual activity. I want to stress that I'm not saying this did happen, I'm just saying that it's possible, and at the very least it certainly can't be ruled out. I drove down Williams Road, got out of my vehicle, and I didn't see a single person so there's no reason to believe that someone else couldn't have. And in a case where nothing seems to make any sense, and no progress has ever been made, we really need to keep an open mind to the possibilities, however strange they may seem. It's funny, when you're investigating a case like this, sometimes new information or leads can come from the most unlikely places. While I'm in my car on my way home, my phone beeps. It's a message from one of the residents I interviewed on Williams Road. It turns out her father was actually one of the original detectives in charge of Jim's case. And he's more than happy to speak to me. I'm out of the boat uh, having a fish. Oh, are you? Catching nothing. Oh, right. Oh, so probably not the best time for a talk now anyway. No, we'll probably sit down and have a coffee, mate. So uh, if you had any questions, I could ask them. Guilt is written, produced and edited by me, Ryan Wolfe. The title track is Nuclear Conception by Alison Winter. For further photos and video related to this episode, you can find a companion post on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, or our Facebook page, Brevity Studios NZ. For ad-free listening and bonus content, 
you can subscribe for the price of a coffee on Apple Plus under our Brevity Studios channel. You can also find further information on our website, www.theguiltpodcast.com. If you have any information related to the disappearance of Jim Donnelly or the subsequent search at the mill, you can contact us anonymously at brevitystudiosnz at gmail.com. On the next episode of Guilt. You know, a good clue and um, it all fits in, you know, Jim's missing and he likes sailing and this guy needed a, a crew member. Um, to finally, I was able to uh, contact him on a um, satellite phone. Apparently he, he figured it out it was looking at a way how to get that out. Yeah. And if you do that, uh, suddenly this problem for the mill, which is the slag, which looks terrible, uh, it kind of ruins the, uh, yeah. the nearby country country area, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, something to make that very valuable. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.